This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. For three years, China has been largely cut off from the world as it pursued a zero-COVID policy. Now the country is opening up again, but in many ways, we struggle to understand it. One person who has tried is Tanya Brannigan, the Guardian's foreign leader writer, who's just published a book about the cultural revolution called Red Memory. Welcome to The Bunker, Tanya. Hello. For those people who are unfamiliar with it, what was the cultural revolution? Why did it come about? It is incredibly complicated, um, but I will try and boil it down to the absolute (laughs) basics. It's a movement that lasts around 10 years. It costs around 2 million lives. Tens of millions of people are hounded. And in its simplest form, it's really a reassertion of Mao's political authority. So he felt in the aftermath of the Great Leap Forward, which was this sort of hubristic attempt by him to overhaul industry and agriculture, collectivise agriculture and put China at the sort of the forefront of international communism. It went disastrously wrong. It caused tens of millions of deaths. And so in the aftermath, he really felt that his authority had been challenged and undermined because it all had to be reined back by pragmatists in the party. And so with the Cultural Revolution, he sets out to reassert his political supremacy and root out all opposition. But what makes it distinct to sort of previous purges, because of course there had been many, is that he goes outside the party this time. Instead of just his usual internal manoeuvrings, he turns to the masses and he uses the Chinese people and especially young people, children in many cases, people in their early and mid-teens, as the sort of shock troops, in a sense, of this movement to challenge authority, to bring it down. And so it ripples out right across the country. Although the movement sees both of his heirs apparent die, for example, we also see whole families being wiped out in some places. We see teachers being murdered by their pupils, children turning upon their parents in some cases, husbands turning upon wives, friends, colleagues turning upon each other. And so over the 10 years, it really devastates uh, the country at at all levels, psychological, emotional. um, It obviously sort of uproots its economy in many forms. And it leaves this kind of devastating effect. And even after the sort of the initial upsurge of what you might call political vigilantism with the Red Guards is reined in, we see this long period of sort of stagnation, which is still very deadly because you see a more sort of bureaucratic uh, form of political persecution. But we see many people suffer and die because of their supposed political crimes or their political background. You say in the book that it's impossible to understand China today without understanding the Cultural Revolution, yet it's not openly discussed in China. Is that because talking about it is discouraged? Or is it because people would rather forget such terrible things? 
it's a combination of the two. And I think it's very easy to focus on the political repression, which is undoubtedly there. It's always been a sensitive subject. Um, it's not completely taboo in the way that, for example, the massacre of pro-democracy protesters and people who supported them in 1989 is taboo. But it is a heavily policed subject, and it's become more so as time has gone on. Because at the start, it was quite useful in a way for Deng Xiaoping and others to sort of say, look, this was a complete disaster. We need to go in this direction. We're turning towards the market. And it, so it justified the abandonment of Maoism. They definitely didn't want people to dwell on what had happened because, of course, the party was responsible. And so even though they've kind of used the turmoil of the Cultural Revolution to say, look, this is why we need to have total political control and keep a very tight grip on the country, because otherwise things become chaotic and you've seen what happens uh, when that happens. They don't really want people to think about the Cultural Revolution in great depth or talk about it in great depth. And then on top of that, you have this level of personal trauma, which is just so deep rooted and which makes it so hard for people to address it. Often, even within families, people are unwilling to speak about it. You know, the number of people who've said something happened to my grandparents, but you know they won't talk about it. Or in the case of one of the psychotherapists I speak to in the book, who starts working uh, with victims of the Cultural Revolution, and she says, you know, that was when I realised that actually my family had been through it too, but they'd never spoken about it. You track down several people involved in the Cultural Revolution, and one of them is called Yushang Jun. Tell us about her. So she was one of the first people that I interviewed. Uh, and at that stage, I really wasn't planning to write a book. Uh, I was planning to write a, an article and then move on, because obviously my job was sort of covering daily news. But um, her story just really resonated and I suppose surprised me as well, because like many of those who lived through the Cultural Revolution uh, and became drawn in as a Red Guard at a very early uh, age in her case, sort of 13, 14, she bears um, feelings of guilt and culpability. And yet when I spoke to her, it also became how clear how complex many of those memories were. She's somebody who actually sort of drew back from a lot of the violence she saw, who said she you know, couldn't bring herself to participate in the kind of beatings and things she saw. And yet what was fascinating was that even though she knew that was right, she said at the time, she also sort of felt a part of her really worried that she was not pure enough, not revolutionary enough. Perhaps she just didn't believe enough when other people did. It made clear how complex it was to live through that time and to what extent I think young people had been brought up in a culture of revolutionary fervor and political zealotry and of course were being encouraged from the very top to become sort of more more passionate, more purist, more aggressive in their responses. And then she also talked about the parts of the Cultural Revolution that at the time were thrilling for her. I mean she was very young, as many of them were, and she was very candid about the fact that although there were so many things she found distressing and clearly traumatic, I mean, you really felt speaking to her that she was still living through many of these experiences in a way when, when she recalled them. At the same time, she was honest enough to say, you know, there were things about it that were exciting. We weren't going to school anymore. We weren't having lessons. You know, we weren't being well behaved. They'd been brought up in with all these beliefs about revolutionary struggle and, of course, had not been able to sort of 
put them into action in a sense because it was their parents' generation who had fought against the Japanese, who'd fought against the nationalists. And and for the first time, they were being told, well, you can go out and do these things and to travel and go around China and see the place. So it was a time when there was idealism. I mean, clearly wholly misplaced, but there was a kind of idealism there. And there was also, I think, perhaps the inevitable sort of joy and excitement that young people would feel in a great upheaval of that kind. And I thought that ambiguity and that honesty was really valuable, perhaps, because most people don't know much about the Cultural Revolution. And when we think about it, we perhaps think of it in quite simple terms. But one of the really sort of potent things is that there wasn't a clear line between victims and perpetrators. And it wasn't always clear what the right thing to do was for people living through that time. There was a sort of series of impossible moral choices. What happened to Red Guards like her who had been involved in this kind of violence? In, in how I suppose the question a reader might ask, and which you try to answer, is how they could possibly have returned from to they could possibly have returned to society having done what they had done and even seen what they had seen how was that made possible i think it was made possible in a large sense by silence but of course that silence has come at a tremendous cost and that's why we've seen these older people sort of come forward in recent years to talk about the things they saw, to talk about the things they did, to apologise to their victims or their victims' families. I think perhaps inevitably, as you sort of reach a stage in your life, you are perhaps more reflective about what you've done. So that was definitely a factor for some people. I think that sense of living with the guilt over the years made, made people want to address it. I think that concern that society needs to remember these things in the same way that we see other places, that sense of sort of never again, you know, if we don't talk about this, it could happen again in some form. So those are all things that made the people in my my book speak out. But of course, most people haven't and don't speak out. Um, and it's also really important to remember, and this is again, something that I was really keen to get across in Red Memory, that many people in China regard the Cultural Revolution with a certain nostalgia. Um, and they see it as a time when people were somehow purer and there was more meaning. And of, of course, as with many aspects of history anywhere, much of it is not really to do with what happened in 1966 and the years that followed. Uh, it's more to do with society now and that sense of looking and seeing the corruption and the huge gaps between rich and poor, that sort of confusion of moral values after sort of years of rampant capitalism on, on top of the sort of tearing up of traditional values in the cultural revolution. So for all those reasons, that sort of made people want to address it in some way and in some cases sort of feel nostalgic uh, for the time, however bizarre or horrifying that might seem to us. And so those were all things that have sort of played a part. And then there were other parts of the cultural revolution, 17 million of China's teenagers were sent down to the countryside in the later stages of the Cultural Revolution. So that was the original way they dealt with the Red Guards, was by getting them out of the cities, physically sending them to these very remote villages uh, where they were told they were going for life. So they were not expecting to sort of come home. They were exiled into this rather bleak rural poverty. We're talking about places without running water or electricity, often not accessible by road, to live sort of desperate 
lives kind of trying to scratch out a living. And Xi Jinping, China's leader, was among these people. So they had a very sort of painful experience of rural exile in most cases, which I think provided perhaps a sort of a break point. And and then it was when they came back to the cities, it was very much about trying to survive again, trying to make a living after all that they'd sort of missed out. And I, I suppose there was a kind of rupture in their experience, which perhaps allowed them to return in some ways. But very clearly, the trauma has run very deep, the sort of the trauma of the early years of the upheavals and the violence, and then the, the trauma of the rural exile that followed as well, and, and their sufferings there. And so it's this odd sort of combination in China of the Cultural Revolution being both everywhere and nowhere, and people getting on with life, um, particularly in somewhere that was sort of transforming itself so quickly and was kind of quite a cutthroat capitalist society in many ways, people needing to kind of survive and get on in life. But underneath it, and not buried very deeply, there is this level of pain, of confusion, I think, a real sense of a scarring from that era. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You talk about how quickly China changed while you were reporting from it, because I think you arrived there in 2008. Yes, that's right. Just before the Olympics. And you said that at one point there were four new billionaires each week in China. And, of course, the country now has built an entire system of state surveillance in order to control its population. You you do draw some parallels between that and what the Cultural Revolution was supposed to achieve. Yes. I mean, I think it's really fascinating to see a country which in so many ways is unrecognisable, which Mao I'm sure would be horrified by uh, if he saw it. Um, in fact, in his sort of dying months, he he talked about how the Cultural Revolution sort of hadn't finished and it needed to be completed and carried through. Of course, what, what came later would have, from his eyes, have been much sort of more appalling. But it's a country which has seen this radical change, which was in, in its way sort of, I suppose, as, as traumatic for some people, But at the same time, there are these kind of clear continuities, and some of them go back in their roots to sort of before the Cultural Revolution. But in a sense, the Cultural Revolution is really where they come to their climax, I suppose you could say. It's a kind of an apogee of Maoism. And so certainly uh, since Xi Jinping took over, although I think the turn sort of predated him, we've seen a much more repressive society again after a period in which it was a little bit more open, in which people had sort of scratched out a space for civil society and so forth. And the party has reasserted itself into all these areas it had retreated from to some degree, whether that be things such as uh, sexuality, even the entertainment industry, but also sort of academia, civil society, sort of religious belief. The party's always controlled these areas, but it did allow people more space. And its grip is now much more rigid again. 
And we saw, I mean, again, with the response to COVID, it was striking how some people in China have seen a parallel with the Cultural Revolution era, with this idea that you're no longer in control. Somebody can just come into your home, take you out and take you off to this quarantine centre. There was clearly a sense there again uh, of there being a sort of parallel. We've got this incredibly intense surveillance system, this real fear um, of what sort of the masses might do and of the need to control them. And so we've seen a, an updated, much more technologically advanced society. Sorry, we've seen a much more technologically advanced surveillance apparatus, but in many ways, it's the same idea, which is you're keeping a very tight control on what everybody's up to. And it's much more sort of politically orthodox. Again, the, the party state seems much more concerned about people's views. So it's a much tighter grasp. And on top of that, uh, of course, you've got a leader who is there indefinitely. Because the period after the Cultural Revolution was one in which leaders, including Xi Jinping's own father, incidentally, um, tried to kind of introduce constraints on the leadership. They didn't want to see a strongman figure again. And so there was a more collective style of leadership and there were norms of term limits and things like this. Well, Xi Jinping has really kind of torn this up. Um, and so he's there indefinitely. There is clearly not a personality cult of the kind that Mao had, but there is much, much more focus on him. He's constantly being lauded on the front pages of the newspapers and so forth. It's a kind of veneration of the leader uh, that didn't happen under the sort of the last few leaders. And so there are clearly people in China who do see parallels. I mean, it, it should be said, many people in China are still very, very supportive of the party state and of Xi Jinping um, and feel that it broadly does a good job. So it's not purely a sort of a, a question of repression and so forth. But nonetheless, there are some people in China now who see the parallels. So we had a very bold essay from a scholar who promptly lost his job um, a few years ago, talking about the personality cult developing again and the dangers of that. And sort of, haven't we been here before? And then actually, we saw in the protests against zero COVID that broke out, there were a few people holding up pictures that said, uh, we want reform, not the cultural revolution. And so clearly, there are those within China who see the parallels too. China. Yes. I mean, it's a, an amazing country in so many regards. Amazing people. And I did want people to who don't know China, I suppose, to read this book and see that there are so many things about it that are beautiful. I mean, the, the culture, uh, the wildlife even, um, so many things I sort of miss about it. And the people, you know, fascinating, interesting, complex people. Because I think people sort of see it from the outside. And I'm sometimes a bit disheartened by how easy it is for people to sort of think, oh, everybody's brainwashed, you know, and it's a, a sort of nation of people doing what they're told. And of course, it's not like that at all. And also, the tendency perhaps to judge people, it was really important to me that people actually didn't just sort of read this and think, oh, how awful. Because you could very easily write a list of awful things that happened in the Cultural Revolution. It was a terrible, terrible time. But I wanted to reflect the fact that people are complex, that they were in very difficult situations, that it would be very easy for us to sort of stand outside and make moral judgments. But 
I certainly don't know how I would have behaved if I'd lived through that era. And I don't think many of us can know. So I hoped that people would read the book and learn more about China, but also perhaps get a little bit of a sense of its beauty as well as of the traumas it's been through. Red Memory is published by Faber. Tanya Brannigan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. If you want to help us carry on talking to fascinating people, you can support The Bunker on a monthly basis. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Katja Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>